it's like, yeah, no, it's like, it's just so corporate. There's very little authenticity to it. And it's like, you go to one, you've gone to them all, you know, it's like, just the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I I knew why. I oh knew yeah, exactly no, they're why. just they're not self aware. No, oh my gosh, they're so not self aware. Yeah. they're just like this is great content. I wish we had this at my age. Just like yeah, Has because they had because they had nothing at your age yeah. like when you were our age. Exactly. <laughs> like the conversations would wait. If I go to one more event, that's like women don't do things because they have children. I will kill myself. Yeah. like it's yeah, it's there's. Like yes, Women that's a bear. Because their husbands and partners are shitty. Well, yeah, that's a much better conversation. Yeah. Yeah, because they all need support, and that's an inbred support. Yeah. That men enjoy that women don't. That women still have to to fight for. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I. And also, like, you're not going to get young people on that message because so many people either don't have kids or don't want kids um, or, at the very least, don't aren't aren't thinking in those issues. Aren't, aren't we the fastest growing voting block? Women wi- who are not married yes. and without kids and are very educated. Close, very close. I know we. I know women are. It makes in, me feel so good. <laughs> in, in the states. That's I feel the like that's yeah, growing, yeah. but I think may, you can't tell be, me that Canada is somewhat similar. For sure, it's got to be. It's got to be. The, it's got to be similar. Um, but the way the way you you know, if you're just hearing their their shit, you would think that um, it's all because we're straddled at home with kids. We can't. Uh, no, we can't get childcare. Speak to women in a way that makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. Duh. <laughs> Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. You guys. We got it ha- right this time? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first time, best time. Uh, happy belated International Women's Day. Same Woo! to you. Yeah. Uh, I, I was stuck at the office and then exhausted. <laughs> so mm. I didn't get to actually do anything for International Women's Day. Your office didn't do anything? They did, but <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, mostly because I didn't go because I was just too busy at work. Um, but they, they held an event talking about senior leaders at the department, but both of the senior leaders were white. Well, who else could they tap? They don't exactly like promote people of color or women of color. I don't disagree with that, but there are... I, I'm surprised. Not at, at the highest levels. Sure. But, yeah. uh, although I am surprised at the level of diversity in my department. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. Okay. So in the public service, there are departments that are diverse as fuck. Yeah. And you will see all sorts of, of different people. Now, why does that go away the further up you get the mm-hmm. chain? And um, that's a question that the public service has to answer. Why mm-hmm. is the decision making only done by white people? Yeah. So it's interesting that they would have an event about leadership at senior levels and then almost make it appear as if you don't really have a shot in hell to get there. Or they could have had someone speaking to, you know, training programs or whatever else or like how to train up to get into those like roles that is speaking from the perspective. Yeah, and like I'm not yeah. going to slag in the event too much just because I didn't go, but mm. I, that was why I wanted to go was to kind of raise the question of to why why are we only highlighting the voices of white women? Yeah, 
But. Well, speaking of highlighting the voices of white women, <laughs> I was supposed to go to this event on International Women's Day, 7.30 a.m., the mm. NAC, Oof. put on <laughs> by Susan Delacourt. You know Susan Delacourt? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Um, Shopping for Votes. Yep. That's her book. But That's her yeah. book. She's Toronto a Toronto star. She saw the star? Whatever. We know who yeah. Susan Delacourt is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's legit. Generally she's, legit. she's legit. Yeah. Only her Ex- little event. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Was only white people. The they were talking. No, she had two white men and three white women on this panel because I was watching the live stream. So when you tweeted about this, the picture was jarring. So yeah, so what I was like, oh, like it's just like a typical like white bunch of white people, fine, whatever. But then when you like, I saw the photo of the people on the panel. I was gobsmacked. Yeah, it was. Very, very jarring. So yeah. the theme of the panel, though, was Canadian media, mm-hmm. wasn't it? It was um, a bit leadership, a bit diversity. Not a lo- no, it wasn't Canadian media because okay. they had BDC there. Okay. So it was more. It was broader than that. Okay. Um, but but like there are so many people doing cool, different work that doesn't look like your conventional thing, and what that event looked like was super corporate. Super people who are already really established who super fit into this mainstream look and feel. Super legacy media. Yes. Super legacy media. Because yes, that's a great way of phrasing it. Because yeah. all of the young upstarts, you know, you've got BuzzFeed, you've got Vice, you've got Press Progress, all of these, I mean, depending, like, regardless of what end of the spectrum, if they're more, like, neutral or more left-leaning, have a lot of people of color in their staff. Yeah. You know what the diversity is with this? It was the brunettes were diversity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am seeing, because I'm looking at the picture right now. It was called Before the Bell Women in Business Event. All white women, uh, two white men. Unnecessary. Let me tell you what. (laughs) And then they started talking about diversity. And that's when I started tweeting. And I was like, that's fucked up. So. Bitch, no. Yeah, Stay in your exactly. Lane. Susan Delacourt and the rest of these like baby boomer generation um, feminists need a clue. It's like they don't. It's like they refuse to understand what intersectionality means. It's not even that they refuse to understand. They refuse to even attempt to understand. Yeah, I was at an event at one like last week and. You know, I, I have not seen such sidestepping when it comes to the R word, which is race, mm. okay? They're uncomfortable. They're, they don't want to talk about it, yet they want us to treat them like they're leaders. Mm-hmm. No. Well, and, and it's just the assumption that by attending this event and hearing from people who, don't ha- who didn't have the same barriers in front of them as you, a racialized person attending... Um, and to think that their advice is going to be applicable to you is just, it's, it's not, it's damaging. Um, and it's, it actually does set us back when you take up space to have those conversations. I agree. Um, because those people have never faced discrimination in their life. Maybe they face gender based discrimination, but even then they're upper class people who have, who are well educated, who have the networks. It's not, they're not reaching out to people who, again, are complete upstarts or who, you know, struggled, who don't present in the same way, who, you know, for, what, for, for many different reasons, whether it's, you know, class yep. or, 
or gender identity or race, right? Um, there or or language or you know. And these are the people who get money to do these things. Mm -hmm. These are the people who are mm -hmm. funded. And so that makes a difference too, because it means that they're more visible in in the in the space. So you're right; they do set us back. I mean, like really, you couldn't find one person of color in a management position who's a woman and doing something. And if not, then that's a problem with the system that we that we live in. I will say that this is, in a way, a uniquely Ottawa problem because this type of panel is actually pretty rare in Toronto. Mm. Like, it's much more rare. Depends rich. who's like it's putting it on. Sure. In, but there in are still media, like, there are just more uh, higher-profile people of color in the media To some degree, Toronto. but I, I think it's the same people who get invited still. And I think, by and large, the events, even in Toronto, depending on who's putting them on, are do st are like first of all, they lean far more corporate even there, mm -hmm. which is a whole other cons like issue of mm -hmm. of having a rounded debate on these things. Exactly. Um, and if you want to talk about women in business, get some fucking entrepreneurs mm -hmm. who who like took that risk to do something, mm -hmm. you know, get somebody in the social space. So social enterprise space. Sure. You can have your corporate, but I shouldn't be seeing two men on a fucking panel on international women's day. Speaking from the same perspective, presumably. Exactly. Yeah. We might as well bring back Sophie Trudeau's tomorrow in hand, you know, <laughs> day. Uh -uh. speaking of which yeah. I saw her on international women's day at like a play. Of oh like man. a kid's play. Yeah. Apparently she didn't get up there and sing uh, self. Uh, <laughs> if I did not have my phone confiscated. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I got my, okay. So my boyfriend's like, you can't, you can't, like you can't. And I'm like, and now I get it because right. you don't want to be that one who has the screen on. Yeah, it, it's mm. for the it's kids. Like a kid thing. Yeah, I, for I the kids so. who are acting, it's it's distracting. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I got my yeah. phone confiscated. Okay, all right. Because all right. like you can't. I'm like, why? Well, and then I and then so the just so everyone's clear, she means confiscated by her boyfriend. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized what I was sort of saying. Yeah, yeah. You're like, <laughs> you got into some shit. I know. <laughs> and the whole thing was in French, so I so we understood nothing. And, um, uh, by the way, I will bring up language later because I had Oof. a lovely conversation with my neighbor today who volunteers for Optiva. Okay. And shout out to her. And so we had a lovely conversation all about this whole International Women's Day thing. I just think Ottawa is just so backwards. It is so backward. It's more backward than Canada in a whole as a whole. No, it's more backward than Toronto, but Toronto's still backwards. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's... It's disheartening. I had a disheartening um, Women's Day. And by the way, that play, I, I don't think it was about women. <laughs> Just happened to fall on March I'm 8th. like, what kind of progressive school is yeah, this? Yeah, that's too bad. Shouldn't they be doing Joan of Arc or something? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Amy sorry, went to an Amy? event. Uh, yeah, I went to the um, International Women's Day Ottawa celebration. I was held down at the Horticultural 
Balding. Oh, at six o'clock at the time of the play that I couldn't <laughs> I'm go to. I didn't Arr! set the time. I'm sorry. I, no, it's not. It no, was. Just, I, yeah, you, know. you missed out. It was really I, good. I know. I mean, it was like yeah, it was a really cool event. They give um, awards for women who are doing. Uh, work in different sectors, feminist, intersectional feminist Ooh. work. Um, there were some, in, like, introduced to some awesome people doing so cool things. were those the Femi Awards? Yeah, the yeah. Femi Awards. Yeah. And uh, they also had performances, so there was some spoken word. Nice. Um, there was an awesome DJ, um, DJ Seismic, Kim Kimbit performed. There was uh, nice. a more sp- another spoken word artist. And then the, sounds awesome. Yeah, and then there was also a play. They did an excerpt uh, from the Gameshi Effect, the play that was on, yeah. You're no, telling me the children can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was it was heavy, but there could be a version that they could do. That would that would be neat. That I know would be awesome. I know the woman behind the Gameshi effect. I should suggest that to her, like as a School outreach place. to yeah, as a way to educate kids about I'm sexual assault. Oh, interesting. Look yeah. at us Look brainstorming at over and here. Doing and doing some work. Yeah. So anyway, it was a cool event. It was really like a really um like str- great strong representation. In the past I've found that event to be a little white but th- it was actually super awesome they were clearly had done some great like brought oh, a lot of communities yeah. in and and Yay. i think it was it was really cool i met some awesome people and also met people i know from the internet so it was great so i believe what you're saying Amy, <laughs> is that those who seek to reach out to others actually get intersectional work done well, and, and who are receptive. Like, I think people have been calling for some, some you know, more, like, spaces to be opened up t- um, for gender non-binary people and for racialized people in, in the organizing of that event. And the there's more representation in the steering committee as well. And, uh, like, yeah, it's totally doable. People are out there doing that work. There's, I think, Ottawa has a really strong feminist community. I just think that there are a lot of people who overlook it, um, who are organizing and see that see as this as, as this fringe group when actually this is where all the creative like creative shit is happening. I wonder if that's part of the problem is that the people doing the work are seen as radicals yes. mm-hmm. and um, you know and and dangerous. Yes, mm-hmm. and unpredictable. Well, we had this totally. Com- we had this conversation um, in our last podcast in our first season at the end of 2017, where like my. Girl, Friends. your re- recall is impressive. I know, damn. Uh, I've given this a lot of thought recently, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like a lot of people are just like, "Oh, well, that's radical views that you wa- like are so that w- equality for women is just not enough for you." Like, mm. when is where's the line? Well, the line <laughs> is uh, where I say it is, and just equality and equity for women generally isn't enough. So we need to do more, and I don't really care what your opinion is. At the uh, yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> so we don't care about your mansplaining opinion. And no, if this is radical, <laughs> oh my gosh, if we're radical, I I let me think about that. Too. Let me just like here's the thing: we're the young, like the young people. No, the younger generations and activist communities are are ahead of the mainstream always. We're not wrong. We're rarely ever wrong. The things we protest for, the things we advocate for, eventually come about, and everyone then claims, oh, we we were on board with this all along. So I'll give you a micro example from just the span of one year. This time last year, 
Equal Voice did the event on the Hill, Daughters of the Vote, where they got 338 yes. women to sit in the House of Commons. Yep. I don't want to get into the details because I was a little close to that event and I don't want to, you know, s speak out of, out of turn or, or reveal some privacy things. But there was one delegate, and this was public, who said to Equal Voice, I want to attend, but I was assaulted on the Hill and it's a triggering space for me. And I want to leave my seat empty in the house as a statement and a demonstration for all the women who've been sexually assaulted and harassed on Parliament Hill. Ooh. And there, like there was, thing. yeah, there was resistance to that idea. Ultimately, it happened. You don't, I mean, you don't need to get into the politics of why it happened. But there were a lot of people who felt, well, why single out this issue? Why is this so important? There were f and folks saying, you know, well, I've gone through this. Everyone goes through this. It's shitty, and we were advocating for it. But, you know, if we left a seat empty for this issue, we, we should leave a seat empty for, you know, That's all sorts of other issues that, you know, and violence that women experience. So why this? Okay, fine. A year later, complete vindication, by the way, for this woman who, whose name is Erzu who has been really um, vocal. She's, shout out. Yeah, shout out. She's the one behind the um, Young Women Lead Initiative to create sexual, um, to create um, awareness campaign, but also resources for women who experience sexual harassment and assault. So why can't these organizations support? Because they didn't, they did, one, they didn't want the negativity they didn't w like they didn't want that to take away the like you know they're worried about their media cycle. They wanted 338 women in in their seats, and they they have at like you know and that's not to say that Equal Voice hasn't talked about harassment on the Hill. They did a lot of good media around it um, and brought together um, parliamentarians to speak about the harassment they experienced. But they didn't like the I guess this the approach that was taken here and highlighting it to that degree. And yet here we are a year later. Yep. And it's all we can talk about. It's and it's been a long time coming, according to everyone. And it's like, yeah, like, yeah, fuck yeah. We like people who were doing this work and doing that advocacy and have lived experience were telling you we needed this shit a long time ago. And then you were telling us yeah. no. Yeah, too, too, too radical, can't control her message, can't control what's being said. Um, well, Which actually brings yeah. up our first piece. Well, I do want to say one more thing on this. Um, is that if you have criticisms of things we talk about or like whether or not you know us personally, like rather than calling out, call us and be like, oh, like this made me uncomfortable for this reason. Like talk to us like an actual adult human instead of just being like, oh, you make me uncomfortable. I'm done with this. Like that's not a productive conversation. Yeah. And maybe. Well, it's, it's not especially not productive if that if you're doing that to racialized women, as was the case here. Yeah. who are, like, trying to come into your organization, which is, like, very white and very entrenched in, like, existing power structures. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there's a million different ways that you could approach that um, in a way that, like, listens to people without diminishing them. Sure. It's just that there's too much of the status quo thinking. Yeah. And these are... The status quo thinking is from women who have benefited from the same system. Or people who feel that they struggled so hard to get to get into those spaces that they risk jeopardizing their own security in them. Um, and yeah, they, it's the drawbridge yeah. effect. So as soon as I get over the bridge, I, I draw, I, the drawbridge comes up yeah. and nobody else can get through. Mm -hmm. Which is... 
what people accused Roxanne Gay of this week, but yeah. Hey. <laughs> Anyways, as Erica alluded to, this week in feminism, our first item is how female MPs are talking about the Me Too movement on Parliament Hill. So amid the Me Too movement, which, of course, licenses women to call out men for their actions, female members of Parliament in Canada are publicizing the culture on Parliament Hill and pushing for legislation to stop sexual harassment. Since January, a series of stories has emerged about high-profile politicians in Canada. Kent Hare resigned from cabinet after a woman alleged he made sexual comments to her in an elevator. Former NDP MP Peter Stauffer was accused of inappropriate comments and touching. Uh, and fellow NDP member Aaron Weir was accused of harassing women, although that's unclear as to what the status of that story is. And former Conservative MP Rick Dykstra was accused of sexually assaulting a staffer who worked for another MP in 2014 and was then allowed to run for a seat in 2015. In the past, women have dealt with systemic sexism and harassment on the Hill by ignoring it and downplaying it, by privately venting to confidants and wor warning other women to be careful around certain men or el on elevators, at receptions, and after too many drinks. The defense mechanism is known to everyone as the Whisper Network a constant murmur of white noise that, until now, has been all too easy to tune out. Being discreet was considered the, a best practice for women, of course, in the intensely tribal workplace where party disloyalty can be punishable by social and professional exile. In late January, amid a flurry of harassment allegations against men in federal and provincial politics, Bill C-65 was fast-tracked to committee. This anti-harassment legislation is due to be passed in June and would amend the Canadian Labour Code by mandating MPs and other employers on the Hill to, quote, do everything in their power to prevent harassment and violence amongst staff. It would require employers to record complaints and investigate them, though critics point out that the bill does not provide a definition of sexual harassment or outline consequences for the accused. Um, so, Amy, I'll turn to you first. Mm -hmm. So... The NDP uh, staffers are mm -hmm. in a union. That's right. They're, They're the only unionized staffers on the Hill. Yeah, they're represented by UFCW, and they went through, they had to get, um, I think, th through the Speaker or through the House of Commons in some official capacity permission to unionize. Some, some Many years back, they've been unionized for a while. And their collective agreement uh, has language around harassment and assault. It has a grievance process, as any collective agreement would. Um, and it also protects volunteers and interns and folks who maybe don't have official employee status That's as well. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, on paper, it's it's uh, quite strong. So um, I feel <laughs> like the NDP should be all over this. The, and, and they are, and they've been quite vocal. Um, and I think... Um, you know, there's, uh, and, and I think UFCW is a, is a strong union. It wasn't always UFCW. They came on a couple of years ago. It used to be CEP and then very briefly Unifor. Um, and so, the you know, depending on the union, there's always a different kind of culture. Right. Um, and you're represented by your elected peers at, at, in a union structure um, who are your partisan colleagues as well. So depending on who has been elected through the union and who is acting as a steward, uh, that can also affect, you know, how people come forward. Although I understand now there's a really great team who is representing that local. Awesome. Um, but in the past, obviously, some folks didn't avail themselves of the grievance process. So in the Peter Stauffer story, that, that really struck me that people didn't go through the grievance 
uh, they didn't file official grievances. They went to their bosses and asked um, to speak to someone in the leader's office. They didn't even work th through directly and indirectly in that incident. And I think that speaks to the fact that the, the, si the, the strength of the political culture and the silencing effect of partisanship. And that the leaders, and you know, when we talk about leadership, leadership sets the tone. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know why a certain um, company organization is in the state that it's in or has the culture it has, leadership. Mm -hmm. And the leadership that makes it to the top of that culture, it's because they promote the status quo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which so is not leadership. It's really just management. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this story uh, from McLean's um, highlights something that you've talked about a few times, Amy, about how the challenge with reporting harassment in Canadian politics in particular is because it's so party driven mm -hmm. and you are kind of bound by loyalty to the party, which you put above the individual who yourself mm -hmm. and, and Absolutely. The, per the perpetrator. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, loyalty and, and your ability to, to, you know, play as a team, you know, is the number one thing that they look for um, in, in promotions and as in putting you to work as a staffer on a campaign or to work in the, like, you know, if you wanted to work in the leader's office, that's the number one virtue that they're looking for in candidates. Um, and, and so you know, women are reticent to report because they don't want to be seen as troublemakers. They don't want to be the downfall of their party. A lot of people have internalized a lot of pride that they associate with being a partisan. And so they want to jeopardize even the party's chances in a particular race. You know, you've worked so hard. Your career is about getting the NDP elected and suddenly speaking out may actually harm our chances. People take that on on a very personal level. And, uh, you know, folks are always looking to move around on the Hill. We don't have career staffers the way we used to. Um, there was, and, I'm, and of course, there was sexual harassment even at that time. But something to keep in mind is that folks are very transient now, moving from one office to the next um, and aspiring to go to uh, always the leader's office. That's everyone's aspiration. Um, and so, the, again, the leader that, of the party, the leader of whatever political party okay. you're part of or a front bench MP, um, okay. you know, like yep. you want you want to be in the status offices. If you're obviously if you are, you know, a liberal staffer, you want to be working for a minister um, or, you know, whatever. Right. So there there's th all these considerations, even in third parties, even when the NDP had very few seats, everyone was getting to work for you know, our celebrity uh, members of parliament. And sometimes that's also because they're working for someone who's a shitty employer. They may be working for an MP who is harassing and abusive. Um, and they think, you know, my best shot out is just to apply to, to the jobs as they come up. And I'm going to more likely get hired if I keep my mouth shut about why my current boss is an asshole. <laughs> because... I want a good reference. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want people to single me out as being, um, you know, against the party and 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 willing to air dirty dirty laundry. Um, and so, if, you know, again, that that silences people. The pervasiveness of the abuse may, in fact, be part of what silences people. So, agreed. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, sexual harassment and harassment is a problem for the public service. Mm -hmm. And any time, any sort of speaking out, you get blackballed. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to. Uh, I, of course, <laughs> didn't let that stop me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find, um, so. 
I told my my former employer that they had um, an environment of sexism and racism, mm. and that I felt uncomfortable and unsafe wow. in that in that space. So you know, and uh, which didn't do anything, of course. No, and but but, but at the same yeah. time, it set a precedent, right? And it it just in the sense that they can't say they didn't know. That's right. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, um, yes, you will, you, w- if you speak out about these things, you have to be prepared to walk away from a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unfortunate it's like that, but the people who uphold the status quo make sure that it's like that. Mm-hmm. And that includes the female MPs too. And mm-hmm. I want to actually put I would I would like to put the spotlight on the people that were highlighted mm. in this in this piece. Um, Bardish Chagger, I don't I've only met her once, so I don't know her space. But Sheila Malcolmson, I've seen, I've heard her speak. Mm-hmm. Fine. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these, like Catherine McKenna. Elizabeth May, Marilyn Gladue. I mean, I, I, I'm just like, before this time, this Me Too space, when it became more, I don't want to say comfortable, but the spotlight was on sexual harassment in Parliament Hill, what were you doing? Well, I can tell you what Marilyn Gladue was doing. At the uh, Conservative Convention uh, leading up to the 2015 election, she was dressed up as the Grim Reaper, uh, giving a speech. <laughs> All right. So why the fuck is she in this article? I don't know. There's I a mean, lot of coattail where there's a lot of coattail riding. A lot of opportunity opportunists. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunists yeah. in this article. Yeah. And I could say I could say Nikki Ashton would be the exception to that. Yes. Well, I would say Sheila Malcolmson has done and a lot Sheila internally Malcolmson. for the party, and I yeah. know a lot of people put a yeah. lot of trust in her and have come to her yeah. to report certain things because she is seen as a trustworthy person. I will, and, I will agree with and that. And she does yeah. go to bat for women. Um, I would say Catherine McKenna toes the line. Yeah. Catherine McKenna... And Haidu is behind this this bill and changes to the Canada Labor I Code. Ah, so so that's the not, context. I didn't she mention is, her. I didn't mention oh, her. Oh, okay. Yeah. You didn't. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But no, she no, was no. on the cover, right? No, no, no. Oh, no. I didn't She's not mention, an opportunist. What oh, I'm saying oh, I is see. I see. Yes, her. yes, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So I would say, like, like a couple of them I don't know much about. Sheila yeah. Malcolmson, yeah. I agree with you. I've yeah. seen her. I've heard her. I, you know, I've seen, like, stuff she's had her. Great. Fine. Mm-hmm. But Catherine McKenna and the yeah, rest and Elizabeth May. That's a, that was a, that was a dodgy choice. Eliz- yeah, a- the Elizabeth May choice was very sketchy given the allegations of bullying exactly. against her. So um, why, like, I, yeah, I, and, I, I and, just like, and I don't know if you remember the stories. Um, and again, I am not at all putting. I, I don't know what Barda Shagger's response. Ex- oh, I remember what her response at the w- time was, but she was one of the folks who had a staffer in her office who was soliciting women, pretending like giving them interviews. Did you <gasps> remember this story? I it don't. Was a few, it was. It was. Yeah, I guess it's been over a month now. So she, there was someone who was working. Uh, in her office or had worked in her office at one point who was um, kind of approaching women on Facebook uh, and LinkedIn and asking them out and but then also inviting them to interview for a position we in talked her about office. That. We talked about this guy. Yeah, very oh, likely you did. Okay, yeah. Okay. 
Um, and but that was her, so, and that was in her oh, office. I didn't realize that and was in her office. And then PMO dealt with it, but then never looped her in. And so she had like no idea of the allegations. And this guy was still putting himself out as being <gasps> a staffer in her office. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I mean that, uh, and I'm, I'm not. Which say, is why I, played, I don't think like, she played a role per se. Aside. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I wonder what happened there, and I hope she's giving. She's been given uh, a some somewhere some capacity to lead on this issue because um, I you know I think and she'd be a good a, voice but, I agree yeah. and that's the thing I'm like I'm like th for the people who've been doing this work mm. where were you supporting them you have a fucking platform you could have like why do you think we remember Sheila cops mm. is because she used her platform to talk about these things mm -hmm. when it mm -hmm. wasn't popular mm -hmm. right yes She's that's still, right yeah she is still um, as, like a liberal MP who is seen in a certain light um, in terms of, I would say, ex she's been extolled as, as, as one of the great ones. But she also experienced a lot of... Um, like obvious discrimination, like you yeah. know, getting like getting heckled with like yeah. some very harsh sexist slurs yes. in the house. Yes, um, that are are like still sting in a lot of people's memory. Exactly, um, and but and but she used those moments to right. talk about systemic change. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and that's I'm just giving context problem. for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my problem. Yeah, I'm like, Catherine McKenna had nothing to say until it affected her personally. Yeah. Okay, and then after that, she didn't even use her platform to to talk about environmentalism and the gender imbalance there. Yes. So, yeah, <laughs> this really bothered me this week when Catherine McKenna was talking about, oh, uh, International Women's Day. Oh, like women experience climate change more differently, whatever. And I'm like, cool. So do poor people. So do other She's marginalized never said groups. anything Indigenous like Indigenous people, obviously. Yeah. She's never, ever ever yeah it was uh, a convenient way to fill measure. and there's nothing there's no position that this government has taken on the environment to address gender experience um like and then like put that out there as like uh, as a fix or at least part of the discussion it's just a convenient thing to a convenient throwaway line to throw into a speech on iwd i think every female mp has to ask herself what has she done to move forward on this issue now some of them will they say they've well, they they're there and that's part of it and no, that they don't want to no. just talk about women's issues i'm just I'm yeah just i know i know i know i know i know well this goes back to what i said last week yeah. is that at the end of the every day ask yourself how is i a feminist buzz exactly today? exactly because guess what if they all banded together mm -hmm. you know yeah. We could actually get movement on this issue beyond just the legislation, but right. actually tapping into the culture. Well, I think it, I think it's happening, um, and it's happening slowly. I mean, I'll I'll just like just to give some more like context and memory to this. There in 2016, when there were uh, the allegations against Senator Kenny, and there were a couple other uh, liberal MPs who were called out, who were kicked out of caucus for sexual harassment and assault. Um, there was a move in in the House of Commons to create um, to create guidelines and to create a mechanism, and that was put in place through the House of Commons HR. Right. But ag but again, to go back to the thing, and the same with the new legislation, um, it, people need to be able to buy into those systems, and so that's why culture matters more. The only way people will put their name, whether it's on a grievance, because you still have to, you know, you're not anonymous, you have to declare yourself or participate in a harassment process under the uh, House of Commons uh, HR mechanism. Again, you have to name yourself, you have to come forward, unless there's a cultural shift where people feel 
their careers are protected or that they're, they have their solidarity there and support, they won't actually participate through those channels. Um, but I think more and more people are speaking out and will uh, just to recall like, uh, and unfortunately, yeah, people speak when it affects them. So there was a lot of media done around uh, when Michelle Rempel was receiving sexist uh, comments and kind of like hate mail essentially. And she and Megan Leslie and, and a few others came out to speak about their experiences. She in the media. used her platform. Yeah. Yeah, some years ago, and that was a couple years ago. Yep. Um, and so I think, like, those conversations are happening. Michelle Rempel obviously has used her platform to call out her own party. Yep, um, In yep. some very unequivocal, like, manner, which I think was, was really bold. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, credit where credit's due there. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know what the next steps are or what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like on the Hill right now because I... I not there, but I'd be curious to know if people feel that there is a difference or if everyone's just looking over their shoulder but not actually changing how they speak or how they behave or um, in a kind of a more like, positive way. So Karen Vecchio says sexual misconduct is a moral code failure. No, it's not. It's not. It's a power issue. Yeah. So, I mean, even, like, it's not. Like, I just... I ju you know what? I'm tired of women saying, why doesn't anybody speak out? Oh, well, I'm speaking out. And they think their job is done. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I'm just like, no, no. You, you, want, you want to know what your moral code should be? It should be that as a woman, I don't want any other woman to experience this anymore. Mm. Mm. Okay? That's your fucking moral code. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the fact that we are just giving them praise just for saying something is 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 low hanging fruit, which is why we get low hanging results. That's my piece. Mm -hmm. But what would you like to see? Like, what would move the I culture would, forward? I would like to see more integration between female MPs and the people who are actually doing the work. Here, here. Okay. Here, yeah. So that they they should be having commit like they should be having meetings with with local like even if it's l it doesn't even have to be local Ottawa. It could be like some. Like, mm. women's organization in fucking Thunder Bay. Which is yeah. what they did provincially. So in Ontario, right. there is that right. advisory council that has pulled some amazing leadership from community organizations exactly. like Activa that's here and, and some exactly. other folks in Toronto who are doing sexual assault education um, through Ryerson and other campuses. And if, and, and if those people yeah. want to run, the people who have done the work, let's get give them some extra help. Yeah, fuck yeah. Okay, yeah. that's the shit I want to see. I yeah. want to see action. I don't want to hear yeah. them talking. Yeah. And the thing is, is that because the more they talk is the more they, they think that they've done something. And they've mm -hmm. done, I, not all of them, like obviously as we've been talking, some of them have done something. So I want to leave them out of what I'm saying. Fair. But It's um, going to take a lot more than that. Two parliamentarians got into it over the government's decision to put several million dollars towards black and racialized communities in Canada announced in Budget 2018. Conservative MP Maxim Bernier took issue with the use of the word racialized in a tweet by Immigration Minister Ahmed Hassan. Bernier wrote, quote, What's the purpose of this awful jargon? To create more division for the liberals to exploit? After which he went on to quote Martin Luther King, saying, quote, Minister, are you saying MLK was, quote, denying the experience of people who live with racism, end quote, when he said this? 
I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In response, the Liberal MP and Parliamentary Secretary, Selena Cesar Chavanes, exhorted to him to do his Googles mm-hmm. and read a little bit more, adding, please check your privilege and be quiet. Bernier, of course, responded, because white men can never just stop talking. Edifying comments from a distinguished member of the House of Commons. Please check your privilege and be quiet. You are aware we live in a democracy with free speech as one of its building blocks, right? Chastened, Cesar Chavanes attempted an apology, which from a politician usually only comes before a resignation or after a headline that leads to a resignation. She wrote, quote, I am not too big to admit when I am wrong. Limiting discussion on this important issue by telling you to be quiet was not cool. She then proceeded to invite him to meet in person to discuss further, which Bernier declined. Of course. (laughs) Maxime Bernier is now fundraising off this exchange, and Rex Murphy, the omniscient one of all things racial, wrote a piece in the National Post that proved he didn't understand what white privilege actually is. Quote, white privilege is a contemptible construction. It explicitly invokes skin color as the only vector of judgment, it insists on whiteness as a flaw, a failing, a failing, and as it almost always is, when yoked with male, is the verbal equivalent of a spit. It is pure stereotype, ugly and angry. It is seen as a necessary term in identity politics, the politics of faction, ethnic, racial, and religious. White privilege is a racist conception, concept on its face, with skin color as the main detriment of value and truth, end quote. In a later tweet, he then wrote that the use of categories around race, gender, and sexuality in the creation of policy, quote, only creates more division and injustice and will balkanize our society, end quote. What a horrifically short history of Canada he possesses. Canadian legislative history has insisted on division and injustice. A handful of money for arts and sports does not divide people. It imperfectly and insufficiently Imperfectly and insufficiently, it helps to heal and correct injustices. As a French-Canadian, Bernier has benefited from a serious mm. seriousness of attention that black people, racialized people, the queer community, indigenous people, and many other marginalized groups continue to fight for today. Oh, yay. I'm glad. So that was by, <laughs> so that piece was by Vicky Machama and... and Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to point out that for those of you who don't know who Maxim Bernier is, he is a red pill swallowing free speech advocate in the House of Commons. Free for people like him. Sure. Yes. Right? Yes. Because free speech only is only for white men. Well, it certainly didn't extend to the member of parliament who yeah. called him out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have issues. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So, obviously, Maxime Bernier has no right to use an MLK tweet because um, the I Have a Dream speech has been so um, misappropriated. It's just just disgusting because that was the smallest part of the speech. The speech actually talks about systemic issues. That's what the speech says. Basically, systemic... I, I have a dream that, yeah my kids won't go through these systemic issues that I just told you about in the first 20 minutes of the speech. Yes, and I think that there is a difference. Like, he is, in the speech, Martin Luther King is calling for equality and a recognition 
of the same rights, whereas what Maxime Bernier talks about is colorblindness, which is the blatant ignoring of the differences of people and just assuming that everyone is different and taking away that ex personal experiences of people of color. That's right. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a whitewashing of experiences of marginalized communities. And um, I like that to me is obvious. What I don't like is that Selena acquiesced. I agree. That uh, yeah. drove me bananas. I she was she like, came back around and like added some more things. She had a great speech on International Women's Day. It was Day. too late by then. I know, I know. And I don't know if she must have felt so much pressure. Like, I really feel for her. I'm like, you're speaking. For, and this is what I want female MPs to fucking learn, is that mm -hmm. when you say these things, you are speaking for communities. Right. To pull it back. That's right. Makes it's it not about her alone. It's not about you. It's To pull it back means that, A, you said something wrong. She didn't. Which she did not. Mm. To pull it back means that, B, you've acquiesced as a woman to a male's opinion that is wrong. A woman of color, which and you shouldn't. And three, yeah. you're a black woman. To acquiesce yeah. to a white male on issues on race is just deplorable. And, and, and that's the thing. I'm just like, what the fuck? Well, yeah. I mean, she apologized for the be quiet comment specifically, not for the whole of what she said. But, but she shouldn't have apologized for that either because, like, I actually think that was, like, a key substantive point of what she was saying, that you should listen to people whose experiences these are instead of taking quotes, reappropriating them for your purposes. <laughs> um, because, yeah, and I, and it's... It, Really made no sense um, why she could have she could have walked she could have walked that back different ways if she wanted to say you know I'm sorry if my tone was impolite but I think and and then reiterated what her her whole premise was which is that I wish for you to take some time to listen to people who are affected by da 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 da, da. exactly yeah. and I think that you can do that in a Twitter essay mm -hmm. she could have refined her thoughts on Twitter. Well, she, she had a good speech on IWD being like, you know, people think I'm going to be one term because I talk out, but I can't not talk out because this is this is my this is my, who I am and my politics are who I am. And you're I'm never I'm not going to stop. Yet she walks it back. Uh, this yeah. is the thing. Like, no, I no, I know, I, I know. But I, I, I just want to I just want to I just want to highlight that. because I, I think know. that's really valuable. And I just a little bit more about MP Selena. She, um, you know, had a wonderful speech in the house about wearing her like hair braided and talking about natural hair and visibility and why visibility is important. I just don't want her to cut herself No, no, off I know. And I don't think she will. And I think she's, I think everyone should write letters of support to her. <laughs> no, I But like, as like she, I don't think she feels supported and God knows who from PMO or wherever, like, you know, like stepped in to say, like, can you walk this back? Like, I don't know what kind of pressure she's under, mm -hmm. but I imagine it's a lot. Well, and I imagine I'm, she gets I'm, a lot of hate mail. Yeah, and I imagine well, half I'm, her Twitter I'm, mentions I'm, were I'm, fucking trolls. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm I'm talking from this perspective where we need to hear more of this. Yeah, yeah. And there are people out there who would support her if she didn't 
if she actually stuck to her guns. Yeah. The fact that she didn't stick to her guns then makes me think that she does not believe in what she's saying. I think she believes what she's saying. I, no, but that's the point. I, I know that. I know what you're saying. I think it, you it undermined her credibility. It undermines in her your credibility. Eyes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. now I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, she's just gonna fold anyway. So I, yeah. I shouldn't support what she's saying. But I think the two things are. It's like what comes first: us supporting her and making her feel like she has backing. In the community and in the general she, public, PMO is never going to make her feel like no, no, she but has we, backing. but we should, and we need to express that. I mean, she wrote that I, beautiful, we do. yeah, yeah, we do because she wrote, she wrote yeah. that beautiful piece on Facebook, right? Yeah, that she wrote a letter and to the, the, black women exactly. and for and we black supported Month. her. Yeah, that's yeah, you're thing. right, you're right. That's the thing, yeah. Amy, is that now we're like. Like for me, I'm like, should I just not support you because you're only gonna wa you're gonna waffle on these things? Like that's my question. Yeah, it's she's not. It's making it. She's making it hard to be. To trust her and to know that she is gonna be a, an ally when it gets tough. Right. And yes, and it gets to the point about these liberals who put women who are not strong in positions of power, almost as though like they don't expect them to be strong and they don't expect them to speak out and they don't expect them to say anything. And that, and, and that undermines her credibility, especially to the black community. Mm. I've had people message me and been like, yeah, I'm not surprised. She's not, mm. she's not strong. That's a, that's, that's too bad. That's too bad. I, I don't know that's what really else, to, I don't know what else to say when you walk back comments like that. Yeah. I, I really well. don't. Although I will say this. I will say, on the other hand, mm. she handled it gracefully. Mm -hmm. He did not. Mm -hmm. um, we should use this moment as a fundraising for uh, to support racialized candidates or black candidates well who are running in the next. Well, there <laughs> you go. If he's using Like, it, that should be a rallying it. cry for people to get themselves like on on some nomination into some Not nomination me, races. But don't don't, don't but ask. Why? No. But, but don't tell Jim Watson this because that would be a conflict of interest. Oh. <laughs> if yeah. Can you imagine Trudeau calling out calling her out for encouraging more black people to run? <laughs> like that's how like he'll be like, are they liberal? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. Anyway I'm done. You're with done. that. But also, I think it's important to talk about this issue that Maxime Bernier doesn't think that mm -hmm. him being a French-Canadian hasn't afforded him any sort of special benefit. Talk about using like ethnicity that, to some degree and language as like a, a, bi like a divisive thing. And like, I'm going to piss some people off, but like that is literally the raison d'etre of Quebec people. Oh, we're into language now. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. Let, me, let me count the ways. Okay. So French Quebec people. Yeah, because yeah, the okay. other ones are fine. Not the Anglos. Well, oh, I, well uh -huh. no, like and, and I'm just throwing a shout out to Franco Ontarians. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give Acadians a shout out too because apparently Quebec looks at them like they're like below beneath yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's Quebec what I mean by has that a racism problem, we know this. Yeah. A huge racism problem. They have a purity problem. And the fact that Rex Murphy can talk about identity politics 
vis-a-vis Maxime Bernier as a French-Canadian is laughable, okay? Mm. It's fucking laughable. And this idea of identity politics, like the only people who practice identity politics are marginalized people is bullshit. This entire... Yeah, white nationalists are shoving their identity politics on our throat every damn day. Yeah. Every politics is all about identity. Let's just agree on that. Yeah. 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 It's tribal. Okay? And at the end of the day, okay, does anybody, by the way, bilingualism <laughs> is an obsession of Otto, the Ottawa to Montreal corridor <sighs> that I'm just done with. Okay? Nobody outside of that corridor gives a fuck. And I will say this. The rest of the country just doesn't give a fuck. There are pockets that mm-hmm. give a fuck. Mm-hmm. I get it. There are pockets. But generally. But generally, pushed on a national stage all the time. <sighs> but it is frustrating the, it, it, that some, like, someone of Bernier's perspective, perspective on Quebec nationalism uh, and language rights where there's even, dis- and as we said, it, like, there is discrimination with, even among the French community. Whether you're from Quebec or the rest of Canada, or you're Acadian, you're Franco-Ontarian, you're Francophone from you know Manitoba, it's seen like they're seen as outsiders as well. So so those lines of division and identity are like held like quite sacredly by um, you know fr- like Ke- so Quebecois Fran- Francophone. Oh yeah, and um, that's not divisive. Yeah, of course it's divisive. Yeah, but they get a pass. That's the thing. Well, sure, they're French one of Canadians the, uh, get a fucking pass yeah. when it comes to identity politics, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. I am done. Okay, now I'm really done. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I, I would just like to say that we've kind of structured all of our topics to kind of just build on Ooh, each other. Good. So I know we're so clever. <laughs> <laughs> our, our next, our next item is. Two Canadian schools are facing blowback for campaigns intended to highlight the racial privilege of students. So I was at a talk (laughs) yesterday and somebody called this divisive and I was like, oh, fuck, more Maxime Bernier shit. (laughs) So the University of Ontario Institute of Technology put up posters encouraging students to check their privilege using a list of privileges such as Christian, white, heterosexual, and male. Meanwhile, in British Columbia, uh, a small interior uh, school district, District 74, put up posters featuring school administration officials highlighting their own encounters with racism and privilege. In one, District Superintendent Teresa Downs stands next to a quote reading, quote, I have unfairly benefited from the color of my skin. White privilege is not acceptable, end quote. In another, District Principal of Aboriginal Education, Tammy Mountain, appears to the, to the quote, quote, I have felt racism, have you? End quote. Administers of the UOIT defended the posters, saying that they were not intended to shame people who fell into one of the in- indicated privilege categories. One of the posters um, in the UOIT issue reads, Quote, becoming aware of privilege should not be seen as a burden or, or source of guilt, but rather an opportunity. Mm. Another one. And then, so then, of course, people are criticizing the posters with one person saying on Facebook, quote, I fit the bill for almost every single category, yet the promoters have no idea, uh, have, have no idea whether or not I've 
had unearned access to social power because of this. You have. <laughs> if you don't know, then you absolutely have. Yeah. First of all. Yes. Meanwhile, in British Columbia, parents are largely against the campaign and are upset that they weren't consulted or given a heads up before. One guardian said that her concern is having to explain what these posters mean to her two grandchildren who are both students in the school district. She says, quote, you and I can talk as adults about these posters, but what do you say to a first grader? What do you think racialized people tell their first graders? Exactly. What do you think black mothers and black parents tell their kids all the time? I honestly, I can't even. That line that like white parents freaking out about how they have to explain these so-called divisive issues to their kids kills me. It's like, you know, some of us have to grow up like seeing this shit firsthand, seeing people outright being racist, like racist to our like, well, in my case, my parents, well, I, you know, I wasn't, I emigrated here probably when I was four, couldn't speak anything, couldn't get through JK. My earliest memories are me not being able to like speak to my teachers, my parents who have, you know, accents who are like new or whatever, their experiences anytime they had social encounters in public places, you know, the RCMP showing up like after 9-11 to our house because like the neighbors ratted us out for speaking in Arabic and everyone was like too fucking afraid to know what was what. Wow. Or like encounters at the ch- at the border crossing from Windsor to Detroit every fucking weekend. Can you imagine if we had a barbarian tip line? Would that oh would my, be I like? Oh, I can't even. I find that I find that so upsetting. But like that's it. Like barbaric practices. You overheard us speaking Arabic in loud tones, and suddenly you think that like that means you should call the RCMP. And you know, and you know how white, Canadians which obviously nothing came of it because that's all that was happening, where people were speaking a different language. And folks thought that that was enough. And you know how you know how white Canadians are w- when it comes to like passionate speaking. They're afraid. Oh, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> God help you. It's you raise true. I'm, no, I'm but not that's even it. trying to be funny. Or they think that, yeah, like people are going to listen to this podcast and think that we're fighting. Oh, they will. They <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> totally, that's right. And I mean, just other examples like. You know, the news was on twenty four seven in my house, having to be aware of what's happening back home. Yeah, and it's yeah. all about race. That's that well, that war yeah. is all about race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I exactly. mean, it's about power, but like r- the way it's reported is about race. I had to deal with you know the depictions, and I mean, I was like, I find any talk of nine eleven very triggering and all that fallout because that was a real thing. Like mm-hmm. my dad couldn't cross the border, and he worked in Michigan, and like for a period of time because of wow. what what the oh, like discrimination right. at yeah, the tunnel yeah. was like crossing from Windsor yeah. to Detroit, yeah. like. First of all, I don't remember ever having been fully... Well, we were sat down to talk about certain things, but we just also sort of had to know. Yeah. And, like, you are aware you're not dumb. Like, you're receptive to those differences. You you notice how people talk about you. You notice that when you're out in public, how people look at you because you're speaking another language. When you're called the N-word at five years old, your parents have to sit you down and talk to you about race. That's right. Yes. And, like... I don't trust white people to talk about their to talk to their kids about race. Sorry. Not in any sort of nuanced fashion. Uh, no. <laughs> I'd rather they hear it from their, like, yeah, racialized adults or classmates in an open education-based forum. But white people don't live in racialized communities. I, and that's well, not to say that, yeah. like, not, that all white people are incapable of doing it. But it depends on who you surround yourself if with. If you're having this, react, this knee-jerk reaction to these posters, you probably wouldn't be able to have a conversation with anyone about this issue, in I, my opinion. I remember telling people, uh, like, recently that the fact that they don't ha- the fact that they can delay these conversations and is in itself a privilege. Mm. At the end of yes. the day, your 
the fact is, is by eight years old, I knew what was what. Because mm-hmm. my parents had to sit down and talk to me about it. Because, uh, like I said, when you're being called names, like Packy, N-word, whatever. Chink. Chink. Thank you. On the schoolyard. You yeah. think that those parents can put that off? And what's with this fragility of white kids? Like, why, why can't you explain that shit is not honky-dory? That not everything's fair. Not like, everything's fucking roses and rainbows and uniforms. Why, why white parents and this fucking fragility that they pass on to their mm-hmm. kids and they want to raise their kids in this, in this idealistic bubble only sets those kids up to be bitter later on. Yeah. When they figure out that life is not like that and they mm-hmm. weren't properly prepared. Mm-hmm. It's also, it's a huge, like that's a, like that is, as you said, that like that's the biggest privilege. The fact that you can be so secure, the fact that you don't have to turn your mind to these things, the fact that you can delude yourself for most of your life into thinking that things are, you know, sunshine and rainbows when the rest of us are like, oh, my family fleed to come here. Like, yeah. you know, we, we, the only way we could get like, you know, in some for many immigrants, it's the only way we could get economic justice. The only way we could get political justice was to leave our homelands. We're leaving family. But like we, most people's framework, most globally. On a global level, most people live in fear and terror every day or some level of precarity around, um, you know, being able to sustain life. Like, it's such a, like, that in itself, the privilege to live in this country as a white person and never have to really deal with those either basic necessities or social and political freedoms is, is, like, I can't even begin to describe what, like, how sheltered these folks are and how lucky they are. And they should just, like, why not embrace that? Why not just say, yes, I am so fortunate and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be humbled by how fortunate I fucking am. Because it's all about them and their feelings. Because white feelings trump everything else. White feelings are more important than justice. Mm. On to our next segment, Rent and Receipts, which is where each of us bring a story to share with the others. So I think Amy's going to go first. Sure. So mine's a little dated now, but I think there's a really good discussion to be had. I don't think we've talked about this yet. There was a rally um, of far far right groups and Chinese Canadians uh, that happened a few weeks ago, uh, February 17th weekend here in Ottawa. Hundreds of people got together uh, protesting um, and it was largely far-right, frankly, white nationalists who were at the helm of it. And they were protesting because they wanted Justin Trudeau to issue an apology denouncing the attack, the alleged attack, uh, on an 11-year-old girl in Toronto who had claimed uh, that a man had tr- uh, twice tried to cut her hijab as she walked to, to school. Uh, it was later found that uh, those, there was a false report, um, which was uh, quite unfortunate for many um, and she, you know, had to walk back uh, that story. Um, but in, in the original telling of it, uh, she had uh, described the person who had cut her hijab as being Chinese-Canadian. And so the Chinese-Canadian community was, um, uh, I guess, mobilized around this issue, demanding an apology, saying that they felt that um, it had tarnished their reputation, their view, and we wanted, and wanted to get an apology 
uh, from Trudeau. And the comments in media was essentially that they felt that, um, you know, they want to send a strong message to society. We are strong. We are united. We are all Canadians and all Canadian ethnic groups are equal um, was one of their takeaways. But they essentially were allied with um, a couple organizations like Wolfpack, a far right group that believes current immigration and multicultural uh, policies threaten the fabric of Quebec society. Um, others were associated with a group called Storm Alliance, which identifies as ultra-nationalist um, and claim um, uh, that uh, you know, that they um, have you know, they have slightly different views than I guess the far right white nationalists that we know. So, all of which is to say, I thought that this was really interesting, and I was thinking about it again last night because I was watching. Uh, that new uh, Netflix documentary, Ugly Delicious. I don't know if anyone has seen oh, it. Oh, I haven't seen it yet, oh, but I really so want to watch it. Okay, it's amazing. So in Ugly Delicious, David Chang, who is a celebrity chef who created Momofuku restaurant chains that are like, well, they're not chains, but they're high-end restaurants. They're in multiple cities. And um, we're getting to chain territory. But he, he's um, the show looks at how food, like looks at food culture and the evolution of food to address kind of like racial harmony um, and how it's allowed certain groups to um, kind of integrate in, in the U.S., um, but also looking at, um, you know, and, and one is it like, and it's not just white food marrying with racialized food or like ethnic foods or whatever, which I hate all of those terms. I don't know why they're coming out that way. Um, but also in other spaces. So he goes, he's in Mexico City and looking at how Arab, Arabic and Lebanese diaspora effect, like affected how food and cooking and meat on a spit was like cooked and done. And, and so he does a few of these things. And in a, one of the episodes I watched yesterday, he's looking at the Vietnamese community in New Orleans who had moved there after the war as refugees who, um, the you know, the Ku Klux Klan was like vehemently against the fact that they had uh, shrimp, like shrimp, um, shrimp for, uh, like shrimping rights and had boats out in the Gulf and whatever else and kind of rallied against them. And But he's then interviewing, you know, several generations later, they've been embraced by the community. They're doing, you know, cool Vietnamese food that's very welcomed and a staple in New Orleans. And yet a lot of the folks, uh, not a lot, but some of the folks that he interviewed were actually quite anti-immigration. Um, and he's trying to get get at like why that is and why like the culture like you know folks who've been here for a long time kind of start to shift against the um, pro-immigrant tide and he pushes some buttons around like getting answers around anti like Islamophobia and whatever else anyway I guess it just what got me thinking and I've been thinking about this a lot in general in terms of my own activism um, how we don't in a lot of activist circles around race issues or ra like issues affecting racialized people, I don't know that we do a really good job of speaking, like is speaking to non-white people. So I think we do a lot of trying to convince the mainstream, which makes you almost necessarily default to whiteness or like speaking to the white mainstream and not speaking to racialized communities and building allyship, um, which can involve very different outreach um, and I think that that's come up in a couple of discussions that I've had, um, you know, affirmative action is one it, like as what? So, um, there is, uh, a group of, I believe Asian students who are suing because they feel discriminated against through affirmative action. 
Oh, okay. Because, um, however, and it's usually and it is targeted to like African Americans. Yeah. yeah. The problem is that African Americans have not really benefited as much from uh, affirmative action as white women have, mm. and um, mm-hmm. it's it's so. I think that it is in the um, it is it white supremacy festers and fosters when we fight amongst ourselves for sure. Right. And I think it's just like in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to do um, like to work to address certain the struggles or liberation struggles or decolonization work when you go to other groups who are similarly affected and say, like, how do we support one another? Because we are all impacted by the same power structures. That's right. Someone, I was talking about this with someone, and they were like, oh, it's actually, that's probably what we should have been doing all along. And this is in relation to getting justice for Palestine um, resolution at NDP convention. Because they don't know that we did a sufficient outreach outside of speaking to the mainstream of the party. But, like, going to other, like, going to the Indigenous caucus and saying, like, and we have, and I think there's a lot of support there, but in terms of mobilizing support and then reciprocating that, um, because it's a lot easier to talk about decolonizing when you're talking to people who already have that framework instead of talking to white people who haven't deco- decolonized their own thinking. And when you come as a group, or uh, wait, when you come as a large group, you come as a movement, mm-hmm. and that scares the shit out of them. Totally, it totally does. It totally puts them on the back heels. Yeah. there haven't there hasn't been enough cross cultural yeah. outreach. Yeah. Outreach and is a big no is for a big sure. Problem. But there's yeah. like you know, but there's anti-black sentiments in racialized communities. There's anti-indigenous sentiments in a lot of racialized like other racialized communities, and we don't really like do the work of. Like, either ourselves, I'm not saying indigenous people have to come and do that work among, like, the Arab community, for example. But, like, we should do more of that amongst ourselves and, like, this cross-solidarity work that I feel is kind of shafted. Because we've let white nationalist movements sort of, like, step in the void and play on people wanting to feel like they're the good immigrants or that they are the good, right. you know, they or in the case of, I'm sure, many Chinese Canadians' um, sentiment that they've been here for a very long time. And, you know, are several generations removed from immigration and they have greater they they have an entitlement to a certain degree of greater rights than maybe, say, new folk, like newer, newer waves of immigrants. I don't know if that's the sentiment that seems to be what's coming through at this rally, which that rally scared the shit out of me for that reason. I remember hearing about like when I heard about that, like on the day of, I was like fucking shattered. I was like, shit, like what a huge oversight and so much work that we're doing. Well, they're being used. Um, I think it's genuine. I think people genuinely got there. No, I think no, no, racism, no, 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 no. racism is alive is, and well. And no, what so I'm saying spaces. is, is that the white nationalists are just using them, right? Oh, and I don't think the white nationalists are there for the Chinese, no, 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 Chinese no, Canadian community. But, yeah, but they're the using point, them to bolster their that's argument. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. For sure. It's, I see what you mean. Um, especially uh, the Asian community has been used as a wedge. Historically, mm. especially between black, between whites and blacks, between whites and the indigenous, yes, and are held up and propped up as this model minority. Mm. Yet, ask yourself, how come I don't see a lot of Asian executives? So there's a problem there. Yeah. So with all the education and with all the model minority status, it seems to me that there hasn't been much in terms of 
progress mm-hmm. on that end. Okay, mm-hmm. fine, great, fabulous. Um, but they're being used, and 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 that's the thing. If you can, w- this ensures that we don't come like this as 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 a movement. Yeah. Once you splinter your opposition, you're golden. Well, I think part of the problem is that like Asian cultures are aren't as collectivist as a lot of other cultures. Mm. Um, they're pretty individualistic, and so they're, they're not used to the types of organizing, particularly mm. um, those who are very new to Canada. Right. So they, they have, they're very deeply religious, very deeply conservative in their views, mm. and I think that we need to start calling those people in. But, like, yeah. So my a friend of mine was on another podcast in the States, um, and he was talking about how his parents, he's Filipino, and he's from Virginia, how his parents are very deeply Republican. Mm-hmm. And they voted for Trump, even though Trump is really not going to do anything for them, but because he's, quote-unquote, religious and, quote-unquote, a family guy and going to support all of these types of very conservative family, quote-unquote, family values. I'm using quotes because, like, let's be real about Trump and his family values. But uh, he has a hard time discussing this with them because they don't, they just don't agree, and they're just very deeply Christian, and that's Mm -hmm. what they're supporting. They're not supporting really much else other than the deeply Christian. No, that's right. And and we have that here as well. I mean, it's why the conservatives do so well with a certain class economic class of immigrants as well who who are um who share some of the more social conservative values yeah um but but i mean yeah we do have to find a way to to get past that and speak to people about what 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 it would actually mean for them to succeed here um i mean it's and to kind of turn their minds more to um the realities of what canadian society actually is and how that how they're seen instead of just trying to get by by getting you know getting along my parents are way more conservative than I am. Mm-hmm. You know, they, Same, yeah. they, and it's a fact, it's also a factor of age. Yeah. Immigrants tend to be, um, I don't know if your friend's parents are immigrants. Yes. I'm not going to, okay. So immigrants have a tendency to be uh, way more conservative. It's just, you know, it's culture, it's part culture and part survival, right? Because, you know, you, I get it, is mm-hmm. my point. Um, I do see, though, uh, uh, and maybe it's just people I follow, I do see that a lot of the second generation, third generation gets it and are supportive, even if um, they're not, like, you know, fist in the air kind of thing, right? Um, So I I could see that. Uh, but I think I think our like general like tone in this episode is outreach. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like uh, there's outreach to be done, and we don't. We're so used to being siloed because we're so used to working in a linear system mm-hmm. that we don't think about the dyna- dynamism of that horizontal outreach. Mm-hmm. And well, we and should I just band think together. I think when you do awareness around anti-Islamophobia and anti-Black racism. Y- the way we do that work, it's l- we are speaking to whiteness. We're never speaking to other people's experiences who are similarly racialized. Um, and I think it would be more effective if we had more targeted outreach that did that sort of connecting, for sure. Agreed. Uh, Erica, do you want to take us to what you have? Yes. 
So I'm going to um, continue my love of GQ <laughs> because I feel like they 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 like speak to me because the way <laughs> they even write, I'm like, how am I not writing like this? <laughs> and they bring up a lot of the issues that they're my like teen Vogue, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. So my um, rent and receipts is that the Democrats can't stop using the same broken playbook. And I think this just nicely ties into what we were talking about last week and this week in terms of propriety, tone policing, etc. And, you know, the generational difference in feminism. Okay. The unit... So recently, the U.S. Senate approved a bill written by Republican Senator Mike Crapo. Yeah, I did not make that up. <laughs> that frees up any bank with assets of less than $250 billion from more stringent federal oversight, nearly five times the previous threshold. This, bank, this bill represents another formal rollback of the regulations and stress tests put in place under the Obama administration to keep banks from going busto on junk investments and thousand-layer debt collateralizations. It's an enraging time to be an American, and one of the most frustrating things about it is that the opposition party, the only one with the money and infrastructure to take on a Republican party that is now a de facto criminal enterprise, still leads and acts as if everything is fine and that we are not in a state of absolute crisis. I know Barack Obama is venerated for the speech he made at the DNC in 2004 that unofficially introduced him as a presidential contender, but he vastly overrated the value of bipartisanship that night. That Pollyanna mindset would continue to haunt him through a great deal of his presen presidency as Republicans openly scheme to destroy him at every turn. And as a final result, they've spent the past year feverishly and hatefully working to dismantle his leg legacy. Time and again, Democrats think the only way to win elections is not fully, is to not fully be Democrats. And this bill is the toxic runoff of that discredited philosophy. Too many Democratic leaders and thinkers are beholden to a bullshit fever dream of civility that has led to staggering electoral losses and Republicans gleefully stripping lower-income Americans of their rights and bodies. Now, let's remember that one of the Democrats that actually voted for this bill, mm -hmm. to, one is Chuck Schumer, Mm -hmm. Two is Claire McCaskill. Mm -hmm. And three is Tim Kaine, who was mm -hmm. Hillary's running buddy. <laughs> okay. It's all horseshit, all of it. See how I should be writing for GQ? Okay. <laughs> Tim Kaine and his ilk need to be primaried into oblivion and replaced with Democrats who aren't afraid to actually lead instead of cutting shitty deals for the sake of saying they managed to cut a deal. And I agree. And I'm going to stop that there because I think you get the point. Um, I, this, just, this just underlines my Selena comments earlier in This Week in Feminism. That the left in especially likes to run away, the center left, likes to run away from any sort of policy that goes 
beyond fiscal conservatism. And that bothers me. They like to underpin all of these arguments by civility. And the problem with the left is that the base is a little too proper. It's a little too upscale, a little too upper class, and a little bit too um, tone policing. And that's the thing. We never, they always think that we're radicals. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the entire, I guess, tone of this episode is the, the fact that people on the right tend to stick their heels in and defend their arguments. It's bullshit defense, mm -hmm. but it's still defense, okay? We, people more left, left of center or whatever, run away from ours, Right. I mean, I think the there's a demographic issue because for a lot of people who are the base of centrist parties or left of center parties like the Democrats, those folks are comfortable. I think that's yeah. like the biggest thing. They're comfortable yeah. and their politics are politics almost of convenience or preference. It's not of necessity. And the people who necessarily need left wing politics are not voters or infrequent voters, or are unable to vote, disenfranchised, whatever else. And so they don't have a vehicle. Um, and because, you know, Democrats know that, they, it's easy to ignore. Right. And just use rhetoric and not have to worry about legislating for them. And they, they also don't make up the party. They should have gotten a wake-up call in fucking 2016. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, and not the actual general election, but the primary election. Yeah. They should have gotten a wake-up call that there is a... A, a, a need. A there's need. a void for someone to speak for, yeah, those That's economic... That's right. Yeah, because Hillary issues. was rejected. Yeah. By, by, yeah, a, and by, she a, major, by she a lot of voters. Yeah. Democratic yeah. voters, That's what I was getting... Yeah, the, and yeah, yeah. And even in the primary that a lot of the discussion was, was well, I mean, all of it was her biggest opponent was Bernie Sanders speaking to these, like speaking and speaking in a way that hadn't, despite his, him being a career Democrat and a career politician, yeah. still speaking uh, for folks. And, and there were a lot of people who weren't regular voters who were moved by that. And there were a lot of people who weren't regular voters who were moved by Trump for saying almost like, you know, they're, saying things on the other side of the, the same, same coin. coin. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. um, yeah. Yeah. Aaron. Do you want me to chime in on this? Yeah, if you like. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the Demo Democratic Party has a lot of a lot of issues. I don't, and I think that it's voters' responsibility to call out people we don't whose views don't align with the way that we feel the party is headed. Mm -hmm. I don't find it productive for someone like Elizabeth Warren to start calling out her colleagues mm -hmm. because she wants to become president because I can tell you right now, the future of the democratic party is not Bernie Sanders. It is not Elizabeth Warren because mm -hmm. they are tired. We need the Democrats need someone new. They need new blood. They need to use the experience of Bernie Sanders of Elizabeth Warren and to have more progressive views. Like that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. 
it's not. They have, they have the to, talent. Yes. They have to address voter disenfranchisement first, though. They have to make it easier for people to vote if well, they want any change on the, on that. Yeah, and that's happening, trying to happen yeah. in Florida. Uh, there's a mm -hmm. ballot initiative mm -hmm. for the midterms this year to mm -hmm. get back voting rights for mm -hmm. those disenfranchised. But they do not show up for their voters. No. That's the thing, is that they don't show up. I, and I do, I do understand, like, there are, like, the way that um, the, the districts are gerrymandered in a lot of states, or most yeah. states, I guess, doesn't benefit Democrats. Mm -hmm. They don't have to make deals like this, like like this this Republican senator. Yeah. Like, really? Uh, with all the things that are going on right now, this is the hill they want to they wanna compromise on? Yes. And I they, they are adding into destroying Obama's oh, legacy. Sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a good point, and there's, yeah. there's one, I forget who it is, um, but he's a senator, and he's very, 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 very centrist. He's almost center-right, but right. still Democratic. Uh -huh. He voted against Obamacare. He's voted against um, Second Amendment. He's voted against pretty much everything, but for still, he's a, he is pro life, and he needs to leave. All I have these, no time. You know what? No time for that. All these old fuckers need to step aside. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I feel like if I'm sorry, we don't the the world, the U.S. does not need an octogen octogen octogenarian. octogenarian. <laughs> Thank you, President. No. So Bernie Sanders needs to step the fuck down. Mm -hmm. And if he truly believes that they, the Democrats and progressives need to be in office, he needs to recognize that he is not the person. Otherwise, he is just as fucking narcissistic as Donald Trump. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, I'm not here for Bernie. I knew you Bernie. had something good to say, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Because it's true. Yeah. These old fuckers need to step aside. The ones who are running the structure of the party obviously don't know what they're doing and they don't listen to to the to the grassroots. Again, it's mm -hmm. it's that it's that it's that like that stratification of the um, people who actually can get shit done but don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then there are the people who want to get shit done are doing shit and are left in silos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're left like alienated from the structure, from the process. And then Democrats wonder why they, lo they lost the election. Cause they weren't Democrats. <laughs> they yeah. weren't, they weren't. It's like when Thomas Mulcair came in, just thinking that oh. <laughs> yeah. like he's not progressive. Yeah. The fuck out of here. Like, and I feel mm -hmm. like you just, you just let people down that way again, which is going back to yeah, exactly what I was saying is that nobody trusts you now. Does anybody trust the Democrats to be, to pass yeah. anything progressive or to fight? These are not, this is another thing. Comfortable people don't know how to fight for shit. Yeah. And they will tell you to tone it down because they're comfortable it's and they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to risk it. It's called fucking wanna... complacency. Yeah. And I have no time for it. I have no time. Okay. So my rented receipts this week is also a little bit of a, a dated one. Um, so this past February, the Manning Conference was held in Ottawa, and this is the Conservative Policy Conference in Canada. They hosted an untelevised panel on strengthening families. One former Conservative MP, <sighs> Erica just like fell over and sighed deeply in her seat. 
It was a joy to watch. <laughs> so one former conservative member of parliament told the conservative activists and sitting members of parliament that there's actually an ulterior motive at play when it comes to daycare and kindergarten. Panel moderator Garnett Genius, which is a dumb name, an Edmonton area conservative MP said, quote, I think that when it comes to this issue of parents staying at home, we see there's a certain political ideology that thinks that's a bad choice, end quote. Stella Ambler, a former conservative MP under Stephen Harper, cut in and said, quote, sure, you, can s you see it in Ontario in a big way, right? With moves towards more and more institutional daycare, government-run daycare, full-day junior kindergarten is an example of a trend, you know, putting children at school in school at younger and younger ages, but I don't think does any three-year-olds still napping in the afternoon. What are we doing putting them in school? End quote. Bitch, um, do you read any sort of studies on this? No. On the I development of children? I don't know that she went to school or can read. It seems very vague. <laughs> her her She's hatred of her hatred of schooling is very like upsetting. Uh, like I don't think she knows what happens in kindergarten. The value of socializing people. Like like I have kids at an early age. Exactly. So I mean if the whole idea and tenet of feminism is that women can make their own choices because they have agency. Bailey, on this podcast, Barry podcast, has stated several times that she would love to be a stay-at-home mom. And you know what? That's her prerogative. I'm not going to judge her for that. Cool. Great. She can do whatever she wants to support her family. Mm -hmm. Awesome. If she wants to work, that's also great. Cool. I don't care. But I don't think that we should be limiting people in their options. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should be judging people for their options. Um, and socializing children at a young age is important. Otherwise, they're going to be those weird kids who don't talk to strangers of, like, that they see in or, like, treat other people very poorly and are rude <laughs> because they haven't been socialized young enough. Also, there's different things that kids learn early that, you know, we're not even aware. Like, it's not just socializing. It's like, um, you know, emo like emotional literacy that they gain. It's like um, like tactile, like different kinds of tactile Sharing. learning. Yeah, like, adva like advancement in general, like language and motor skills that comes from like being in, in a more engaged environment with attention. Like how to behave that, in yeah. public. Yeah. <laughs> like these are yeah. a lot of things that Going to school, going to daycare teaches people. Anyway, that's... I you mean, know why parents don't teach their kids how to behave in public? <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> Send at me. I, I give no shits, okay? <laughs> they really... They don't. They... You know what? These are people who mollycoddle every little tantrum their children... Yeah. They, their children go through. I saw a child rolling around. I have this... Y'all, I have this thing about bad-behaved children. Oh, <laughs> like, I have this thing. Okay, because you know I'm, my parents are West Indian, and you don't, you did not do that yeah. shit. Okay, <laughs> like the worst thing was to embarrass your 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 parents in public. That was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I saw a kid rolling around on the ground in a bakery, and the mother's just there, eh! clapping as though that this kid is doing something. So I looked at the kid and I looked at her and I gave her a look. Mm. And finally she was like, oh, well, he's just very expressive. 
I'm like, we're all fucking expressive. Like, I don't understand why I should mollycoddle at the the bad behavior of somebody else's kid. Anyway, that's my side. Sorry. I guess the thing is, uh, you know, you can. Uh, and it's not to say that you can't teach these things at home. Certainly you can teach them, but there are advantages in sending kids to school. So her point about why we, what are we putting them in schools? What can they possibly gain? They can gain a lot of things. The issue here, the crux, isn't whether or not someone chooses to stay home or whether or not they choose to put their kid in mm -hmm. child care. It's that they, mm -hmm. you don't have the option of child care. Yeah. Because, like, like, in reality, it's too expensive. There are no spaces. And you can't... Very few people can run a single-income household. Yeah. It is nearly I, impossible to sustain yourself on a single income. This yeah. is why the concern... Unless, I guess, I'm Garnet Genius, and, I mean, I know him, so I feel like I'm just calling him out like him being a dick. We used to uh, do competitive debating together. But in any case, he's got kids. I'm sure his wife is, uh, I'm pretty sure, I don't know for certain, is a stay-at-home mom. But, like, yeah, you've got the income of a member of parliament, so I'm pretty sure <laughs> it's very easy for you to pull off. I love how it's like institutional daycare, government-run daycare. It's As though these women are just making a choice. It's not Big Brother running the daycare. Yeah, that's how yeah, they make yeah. it. It's yeah. government <laughs> subsidized. Yeah, yeah, that's different. Institutional daycare makes it sound like we're putting these kids in straight jackets. It's or not something. 1984. <laughs> and I'm just like, if you can't talk about these things like an adult... Don't don't bother opening yeah. your mouth. Yeah. Also, I, I I'm saying this as someone who def I had a stay at home mom. There's definitely nothing wrong Same, with it. Same. Me too. Yeah. There I we're didn't. not. We're totally here for stay at home moms. But it's n it's not a meaningful choice if that's your only option, because you can't afford childcare. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's not a choice. Then it's not a choice. Okay. Great. So uh, I guess that uh, that does it. So uh, any parting words, ladies? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I would like to say is, uh, nope, that's not it. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was something different. Anyway, don't forget to become a patron of the podcast, patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. Get cool shit. Um, and as always, thank you to Media Style for letting us use their space. Media Style is a progressive public affairs agency located in Ottawa. They are a social enterprise making Canada a better place. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook.com slash Bad and B Podcast, and uh, send us your, your love letters, mm -hmm. Bad and B Pod at gmail.com, but don't be creepy <laughs> because we will put you on blast. <laughs> we will read it out. But if you have uh, questions for our advice column, dear bitches, very, very welcomed. Yes. Bye. 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 Bye.